0: The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. Well, hey, when I was in elementary school, we would play basketball at recess, Um, so as soon as the bell rang, you'd dash outside to those asphalt courts. And as quickly as you could, you'd try to get get teams uh, selected because you wanted to get on with with the plane. And there was one kid that you always wanted on your team. Matt Fry. All right? Now, Matt Fry was like 6 to 26 inches taller than the other 6th graders. I'm pretty sure Matt started shaving um, when he was 8. And uh, he was a man-child, right? He was just bigger and taller and more powerful. And, And everyone knew if Matt was on your team... If he was on your team, all you had to do was give him the ball. You'd win every time. And no one could stop you because no one could stop him. See, who's on your team matters. When I was in college doing my undergraduate work in electrical engineering, often we'd have lab assignments. And with lab assignments, very often came lab partners. Right? And there was one other student, Jeff Pankinem, that everyone always wanted as their lab partner. Jeff was sharp. He was older than, than the rest of us, um, which meant that he had better study habits. Okay, um, and, But the best thing about Jeff as your lab partner that he was effective and he was efficient. And so he didn't waste any time. And he always got the project done. And so everyone knew if Jeff was your lab partner, if he was on your side, you'd get the A every time in less time. Who's on your side matters. When I worked in the aerospace industry on an engineering team, there was always problems that would would come up. And there was one guy in our group, Steve Thelker. And he was possibly the most humble and, and smartest man that I have ever met. There was nothing that Thelker couldn't figure out. All right, we'd have circuit boards that would have like weird issues that happened one out of like 200 power cycles only at minus 55 degrees Celsius. And you'd go in the lab and you're trying to troubleshoot this junk, right? And you always wanted Felker there. In fact, any problem that came up, whether it was on one of our circuit boards or out in the factory floor or honestly anywhere else throughout Boeing or any of the subcontractors that we worked with, whenever there was a really nasty problem, Felker would get called in. There was no one smarter than Felker. Felker could figure out anything, and everyone knew if Thelker was working on the problem, he'd figure it out every time. And so you always wanted to be working with Felker. If you're a project manager manager, you always wanted Felker working for you. Who is for you matters. And we understand this, don't we? From the playground to the corporate world and a, and a thousand other instances, we know. Who's on your team matters. Who's on your side matters. Who is for you matters. And it turns out the Apostle Paul agrees. And in our text today, he's chiefly concerned that we know that God is for us. And he's bigger and more powerful than Matt Fry on the basketball court, he's more effective and efficient than Jeff Pankinen in the lab and he is smarter and wiser than all the Steve Thunkers put together. And he's for you. He's for you if you're a Christian. I mean, just stop for a minute, right, and contemplate this really simple and yet immensely profound truth. If you belong to Jesus, if you are a follower of Christ, a Christian, God is For you God is like the the real God the the living God the the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob the God of Exodus and Easter The, the God of the first advent who will be the God of the second advent the one who can part the sea quell any storm the God of creation, the the one who can heal the sick, the the, the one who can raise the dead, give sight to the blind, make the lame walk, the God of the universe, the God of everyone and everything is for you. That's what we're going to see in this text this morning. And we'll look first at the glorious truth that God is for us. The glorious truth. Secondly, we're going to look at the conclusive proof that God is for us. And then third, the gracious, preserving result of God being for us. The truth, the proof... And the result, first, the truth, as we reach verse 31 in, in Romans 8, in our sort of slow roll through Romans 8 and the smoker of Romans 8, remember, we're, we're beginning now at verse 31 to um, kind of hit the, the, the climax section here in Romans 8. In fact, in some ways, verses 31 through 39 altogether is the, complex, is the climax of the chapter, possibly of the whole book of Romans. There's an energy here, there's an excitement here. Everything has been building up towards this. And so in verse 31, Paul asks, "What then shall we say to these things?" And you know, our English Bibles in our English Bibles there's a question mark there, appropriately so. But the sense seems to indicate that the the question mark, exclamation point combination would be more appropriate there, complete then with the, the party emoji, maybe in addition to the smiley face emoji with the sunglasses on. Right? What then shall we say to these things? And that these things here includes everything that we've covered so far in Romans 8, all the glorious truths, But it also extends all the way back through Romans thus far. It includes the truth that for those who belong to Jesus, we have been justified. Like you and I have been counted as righteous before our holy God. We have peace with God. We have access to God. We have hope in God. We've been united together with Christ in his death, in his resurrection. We have a new identity We've been adopted into his family. There's, there's no condemnation for us now. We're promised eternal life. Suffering, suffering's got nothing on the glory that is to be revealed to us. He's given us his Holy Spirit who intercedes with, before the Father for us. He's working all things together for our good and we have a certain security and eternal assurance that comes from being caught up in God's eternal plan. And so, like, what then should we say to these things? What, what can we possibly say in response to all this glorious truth? The Apostle Paul tells us there's really only one thing we can say. In the second half of verse 31, it functions as an answer to the question, even though it's, it itself is phrased as a question. And if, if God is for us, who could be against us? And the us that he's talking about here, it's the same us from verses 28 through 30. It's those who love God and have been called according to his purpose, right? It's those whom he foreknew and predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son. It's the the same those whom he also called and justified and will certainly glorify. In other words, it's true believers that he's talking about here. Regular old Jesus-loving, Bible-reading, holiness-pursuing, glory-bound Christians like you and me. And he says in response to all these things that he's laid down so far, what shall we say? The only thing we can say. If God is for us, who can be against us? Or even since God is, is for us, because he clearly is in light of all the truths stacked up in Romans 8 this far. Who can be against us? It's a rhetorical question. The obvious answer is no one. But notice Paul doesn't ask who is against us. There's plenty of people and things that are against us as Christians in the world. In just a few more verses, he elaborates on some of them, tribulations, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, the sword, angels, rulers, powers. In Ephesians 6, this same Paul tells us that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Friends, there's plenty of things that are against us as Christians. Plenty of hardships and sufferings that come our way. Plenty of indwelling sin still left in us. Death itself has been defeated, but it's not yet destroyed. The world, the flesh, and the devil, they're all against us. I mean, if we were left to ourselves, left to our own puny strength and power, or our own Ineffective effectiveness, our own finite smarts and limited wisdom and ability, we would be hosed, hopeless, helpless, like defeated already. Like trying to sink a battleship with a pea shooter. But listen, we're not left to ourselves, are we? Quite the opposite. God is on our team. God is on our side. God is for us. And who is for you matters. John Stock, commenting on this verse, says it this way He said, All the powers of hell may set themselves together against us, but they can never prevail since God is on our side. John Murray, from his commentary, puts it this way. He says, in the last analysis, there is no against within the orbit of the interests of the people of God. Ray Ortland says it this way. The God who is never defeated by evil, but always uses evil for good, The God who can never be outflanked or surprised or wearied or perplexed. This God is for us. Think about just one implication of this truth. When you feel alone in this world, lonely, when you feel like everything and everyone is against you. Maybe you've been criticized or ostracized or ghosted or canceled or abandoned. Maybe you're burnt out. Maybe you feel unconsidered, unpursued, unloved, uncared for. When you feel like no one is for you, The word of God tells you instead, God is. God is. He hasn't forgotten you. He hasn't lost track of you. He hasn't left you or forsaken you. He sees you. He hears you. He knows you. He considers you, pursues you, And loves and cares about you and for you. Contrary to the popular ad campaign right now, he doesn't just get you, he's for you. He doesn't just sympathize with you in your plight, though he does, and that is miraculous. But it goes way further than that, Paul says. He's on your team, and you're on his. He's on your side, and you're on his. He's for you, which means you're never alone. And whatever comes your way, there's literally nothing to fear. This is the glorious truth that God is for us. Now, the second thing that we see in our text today is the conclusive proof that God is for us. The conclusive proof. And it's the most conclusive proof that there could ever be. See, Paul doesn't just lay down a truth. He also points us to the proof. He says, don't take my word for it. He says, instead, look what God has done. Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, with him, graciously give us all things? Church, the the reason we know that God is for us is because he gave his son for us. This is the proof. And every word in the first half of verse 32 is just pregnant with meanings. So let's, let's just kind of step through it a bit. He who did not spare his own son. Who's the he? It's God the Father in heaven. He who did not spare his own son. Who's that? That's Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The eternal Son of God the Father, the one who took on flesh and came for us, or more accurately, was sent for us. Paul writes, so the Father gave him up for us. He gave him, not just to us, for us. He sent him for us. That's part of what we remember and celebrate during this season of of Advent, that God the Son took on flesh, he incarnated, that he came for us, but he did not only come, he was given God gave his son for us. And not in some general way. It says he gave him up for us. For us all. And the for us all is the same us all that we've been talking about earlier. This isn't Paul sneaking in universalism all of a sudden. He's talking about God the Father giving God the Son for all who trust in Him. Jews and Gentiles together in the church of Rome and you and I as Christians today those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. God gave Him up for us all. Meaning also... God knew what he was doing when he sent his son. He knew that that the result wouldn't just be sweet songs like Silent Night and imagery of a helpless babe laying away in a manger in Bethlehem. He knew the result would also include songs like Man of Sorrows and, and the imagery of crucifixion and death at Golgotha. It was all planned from the beginning. Peter says in Acts 2 that this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. In Acts 3, he says what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that this Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Or in Acts chapter 4, when the early Christians pray for boldness, they lift their voices. Do you remember what they say? truly in this city they were gathered against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place in other words God sending the son God giving his son giving him up for us all it was always plan A Plan A. Now, I got into Formula One racing this summer. Adam's been evangelizing me for a couple of years now um, with the gospel of F1 racing. And the penny, the penny finally dropped this, this last summer, and I became a believer. All right? And um, uh, Team Ferrari became my, my favorite, which is a little unfortunate because it turns out that Team Ferrari this year has also been sort of like the Nebraska football of F1 racing. Like, they found different ways to lose, like, new and amazing ways to lose, like, every week, you know? And um, often, it was with bad strategies for Ferrari. But one of the fun things about watching these F1 races is also listening in on the radio communication between the pit boss and the driver themselves. And with Ferrari in particular, you'd be watching the race, and the pit boss would come on the radio, and he would say, Plan G, Plan G, or or Plan F. Plan F, that was my best Italian accent, I guess. That's all I got. I don't know what that was, really. Canadian something. But what that meant, though, they're on like, their sixth or seventh plan for the day, right? That was their, their, their strategy. They're all the way down at strategy number six or strategy number seven. It was never plan A. It was always plan F or G. And the commentators would just chuckle, you know, like, oh, my goodness. How many strategies must this team have? Well, listen. There is never anything but plan A for God the Father sending God the Son to be given up for us. When Jesus hung on that cross, God the Father, didn't, he didn't get on the radio to Jesus in the grave and say, plan B, plan B. Instructuring him like, hey, real quick, like, let's, let's resurrect, let's, let's start this over, you know, like, No, it was always part of the original, eternal, plan A strategy. (laughs) He was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It was foretold by the prophets. And when Herod and Pilate and the Jews put him to death, it was all in accordance with God's hand and his plan. God the Father knew Oh, he knew. He knew what it would take. He knew his own son would be murdered. He knew that his own son would be crucified, and he sent him anyway. He gave him up because he knew it was the only way for us to be forgiven and reconciled to him. Romans 8.32 says he didn't spare his own son. He didn't spare him. No, he bore the full wrath of God owed for our sin. He was given up to bear the full penalty of God's holy law pronounced against sin. Nothing, nothing was withheld. In the words of Isaiah the prophet, surely. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How's he not also going to give us all things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's the glorious truth. He didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That's the conclusive proof. Church, the reason we know that God is for us is because he gave his son for us. And what this means for you is that when you doubt that God is for you, because we do that from time to time, don't we? Like when the circumstances of your life conspire to convince you otherwise, when you look around and you feel alone or you feel afraid when nothing seems to be going the way it ought to and it feels like God has abandoned you. When the enemy comes along and whispers in your ear, he has. He has abandoned you. He's not good. He's not for you. He's against you. When that happens, when That happens because it does in the Christian life. This text right here says, Go back to the cross. Go back to the cross. Go back to the cross. The reason we know that God is for us is because he gave his son for us. This is the conclusive proof that the glorious truth is grounded in. It's not grounded in how you feel. It's not grounded in what your circumstances tell you or what the secular culture around wants to tell you. It's not grounded in what the enemy wants to whisper to you. It's grounded in Calvary reality. Which means, if you're still struggling to believe that God is for you, you're still struggling to fully grasp all that happened on the cross for you. Just go back to the cross. We never get past the cross. We we never get past the substitutionary atonement of Christ on that cross. We have no confidence that God is for us without this sacrifice. Sacrifice the atonement of Jesus. We never get past God the Father sending God the Son, His own Son, not sparing Him, but instead laying upon Him the iniquity of us all, giving Him up for us all. We never get past that. We never get past it, even as Christians, even as maturing Christians in our walk with Jesus because Paul says, that right there, my friends, is the conclusive proof It's what we look to and know. God is for us. God is. And that brings us to the third thing that we see in this text, which is the gracious, preserving result of God being for us. The gracious, preserving result. Look at the whole thing again. Verses 31 and 32 and let's actually read this out loud together this time you know just like kind of for one another right like if if it was possible i don't know if you can do this or not but if you could like read this out loud together and kind of like look around at the people next to you because you're reading it for yourself and for them let's let's read this out loud together and 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 try to get it into our hearts a little more beginning in verse 31 What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him give us all things? Yeah. Now look, what, what Paul is doing here In the last part of verse 32 is he's making an argument from the greater to the lesser. Do you see that? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That's the greater. Right? Actually, that's the greatest. Like, it doesn't get any greater. It doesn't get any better than that. Like, I don't know what you want for Christmas. I don't know what's on your list. But nothing, nothing is better than this. Nothing. There is no greater gift for anyone in the world to receive than Christ given up for them. Nothing. And Paul says, if he's done that, if he's done that, if he's given you that, if he's given his son for you, here comes the lesser. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Isn't it crazy that in the economy of God, all things are somehow lesser than him giving us his son? All it does is prove to us how incredibly magnificent the giving of his son really was. Giving us all things is nothing in comparison to giving us his son. Paul is saying if, if the Father has done the greatest thing, given you the greatest thing, his son's sacrifice on the cross, then the lesser thing of giving all things to you as one of his own now is guaranteed. Guaranteed. Now, when Paul says all things, That God will graciously give us all things? You might be thinking, hmm, that's not true. I can actually think of a lot of things that God hasn't given me, you might think. Hasn't given me a new truck, hasn't given me a spouse, hasn't given me a new job, hasn't given me a raise. Hasn't healed my chronic illness yet. Hasn't brought my adult child back to the faith yet. You might be thinking right now, actually, come to think of it, I have a lot of unmet needs. I have several unanswered prayers. In fact, contrary to God giving me all things, sometimes it seems like he's actually taken things or people I love away from me. How can you possibly say that God will give give me all things? Well, listen, when we hear Paul say all things, here in verse 32, it should ring a bell in our head called Romans 8.28. Remember the all things back there where he said that for those who love God, all things work together for good? you know the rest of the chapter, you know that in verse 37, he's going to use the phrase again in reference to tribulation and distress and persecution and all the rest. And he says in verse 37, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. In other words, in the fuller context here of Romans 8, the all things that God graciously gives us has everything to do with getting us from where we are right now to where God has promised we will be forever with Christ, like Christ, in heaven. He will spare no expense for that. He has a whatever it takes approach and attitude toward you with respect to that. He stands ready to generously give you whatever it takes, whatever you need to preserve you to the end. To preserve you all the way to glory. That's what this is about. Listen to how Martin Lloyd-Jones puts this. He he says it this way. He says, I couldn't couldn't put it better so we're just going to read him, right? All things... That are necessary for our perseverance. Every grace that we can ever need, we shall have. Whatever my circumstances, wherever I am, whatever the trials, the troubles, the tribulations, whatever my weakness, frailty, whatever my sin it makes no difference. He who freely gave up his son for me will with him also freely, graciously, to use the ESV word, give me all things. Everything I shall ever need. In health. In sickness. In pleasure. In pain in plenty, in penury. I had to look that one up. It means extreme extreme destitution. That's what that one means. Just in case you're like me and you're like, "Mm, no idea. Whatever my circumstances may be, he will freely, graciously give me all that is necessary to keep me, hold me, guide me, to mold me until at last I shall see him as he is and be made like him and be with him in the everlasting glory. Don't you kind of wish that Lloyd-Jones was your preacher? That's why you read eight volumes worth of his stuff on Romans just to get a couple nuggets like that. It's like, whoa, that's good. And it is. It is. Church, God is for you. This is the glorious truth. The conclusive proof, he sent Jesus to you and for you, giving him up for you. And the gracious, preserving result, he has and he will continue to give you everything you need to make it to glory. The apostle Peter said it this way, his divine power has granted to us some things. No. All things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his, own, to his own glory and excellence. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. So that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Or listen, in the words of the psalmist, right? He is your light and your salvation. Of whom shall we be afraid? He's your refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. He's our shield. He's our strength. Who's going to stand against us? He's with us. Like the the mere sight of his rod and his staff while we walk through the valley of the shadow of the death is enough to comfort us. Church, who's on your team? Who's on your side? Who is for you? Matters. Would you hear the word of God this morning? Tell you and assure you God is for you. Let's pray. Hmm. Father, it it ought to be as obvious to us as as having the, the... the biggest man-child on our elementary school basketball team, like the, the sharpest lab partner or the smartest guy on our project, it ought to be as obvious that if you're on our side, if you're for us, nothing can beat us. Nothing can stop us. That there is nothing in this life that's going to so trip us up that we don't make it to glory. Because... No one can beat you. Nothing can stop you. You'd have to be defeated in order for us to be defeated. And you, God, are undefeatable. Use this passage now to increase our assurance, to strengthen our trust. Strengthen our our faith, the restedness of our souls. By your spirit, preserve us. Give us endurance and perseverance. Graciously give us all things, everything we need to make it home. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.